1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you're a guest with us today, you are in the midst of a um, preaching through the book of 1 Timothy. I think this is week uh, 12, and um, we've only made it to chapter 3, uh, so that might give you a little evidence of what we are as a church. Um, in our last five weeks, we've been in just verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3. And uh, this will be the last week on elders, and we're actually going to, in a few more minutes, jump to chapter 5 uh, as we complete our teaching on elders from chapter 3. If that doesn't confuse you, well, it should. Um, I thought about not handling the text in chapter 5 until we arrived at it, but I thought it would do us some good to go ahead and handle it now. Um, but nevertheless, I want to read chapter 3 again to you. Uh, and then kind of remind you of where we've been and why we've been here and why we've taken such a long time. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The holy inspired word of God says this. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall in the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So Paul, writing to his young protege in Ephesus, Timothy, who is pastoring a church plant there, uh, I feel his pain. Uh, and you, for those of you who walk through our plant as well, probably also feel his pain. Uh, as it is not easy to plant the church and to walk through the difficulty of that. Um, Paul writes not only to Timothy, but we've read last week that he also wrote to Titus uh, in reference to elders. And he actually told Titus, the very reason I left you there was so that you could put what needs to be in order, and that is in reference to installing elders now. If you're not familiar with this, or if you've just now joined us in this study, uh, overseer is synonymous with elder, which is synonymous with pastor, which is synonymous with bishop. It's speaking to pastors, and we have made the case in this series and in other series reference our elders that every church should have a plurality of pastors. There is not one pastor who runs the church. And though that is probably what is most familiar with many of us who grew up in the South, one pastor who runs everything, uh, and you may have had experience with a healthy pastor who ran the whole thing, but by and large, if you ask around, that is not what people have had experience with. They've had experience with one pastor who was not so healthy, and there was problems within the church, or you may have grown up in a church in which the deacons ran everything, which is also not a biblical uh, idea at all. Uh, you'll learn that in the coming weeks as we study deacons, because deacons are servants of the church. They are not overseers of the church. But we see in this text, in Titus, and in Hebrews, and First Peter, and much of Acts, that the elders, the pastors, are a plurality. There is more than one in a local church. And those men 
oversee the affairs of the church. Now I'm well aware that many of you come in with burdens and struggles and it does not seem that a lesson on elders is what you might need. You might say to yourself, I need this or I need that or my marriage is struggling or uh, we're having difficulties in the job or I'm having difficulties with private sin or I'm having difficulties in my marriage and you might say, I need something more important. I need something that identifies with what I'm struggling with and so I don't know why we're spending so many weeks on elders and I can understand that. So let me help you as a church with a few things. If you come to church every Sunday morning and your plan is, what can I get out of the sermon today? Well, I need a sermon that speaks to my situation. You're already starting off on the wrong foot. The Word of God speaks to God, not to you as an individual. And what happens is we try to make ourselves the point of the text and ourselves the point of everything that happens. So we come to church and say, I need to get something for me today. Here's what you need to get for you today. You need to hear the word of God preached to you. That's what you need to hear. And so let me give you a great example of this thought about elders. If you are a believer, then you would, I would hope you would, believe that this book that we call the Bible is the word of God. The holy inspired word of the creator of all things the sustainer of all things, who rules the universe. And the words that he has spoken has been recorded in what we call the Bible that he spoke to man as he carried them along in the Spirit. And so the words of 1 Timothy may be from Paul's hands, but they are from the mouth of God. Now let me just help you understand that. Timothy and Titus, Almost 20% of what God spoke to Paul to Timothy and Titus, almost 20% of these words are referenced to elders. So here's what I would get you to understand. I want you to feel the weight of this. God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, thinks... That 20% of what Paul needed to say to Timothy and Titus was reference to guys like me who stand in pulpits like this to do what I'm doing today. That's how important God thought it was. And so I would tell you that if 20% of the letters is in reference to the role of a pastor and the character that he should have, and you as a people who are going to be taught by those pastors and who have a role in holding them accountable as well, and you have a role in how you respond to those pastors, if God thinks that 20% of what needed to be said is to be said about elders, then I would say that's an important thing for us to listen to. And that's an important thing for us to get. It would not be um, far-fetched if you've grown up in the church that you have probably been hurt by the church. And I would dare say that 90% of that hurt is in reference to a pastor. It's in reference to how a leader said it. Unless you are a pastor, I'm getting there, Wayne. <laughs> Wayne pastored 48 years full time. 
If you are a pastor, 90% of the pain you have experienced is how the church responded to you or did not respond to you. So we need to hear this. You need to know what kind of men should occupy this position. This is not about Jason Williams, per se. It is about the role of pastors, but you as a congregation need to make sure that Jason Williams and Lucas and Wayne meet the criteria that is called out by 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 and Hebrews 11 and 1 Peter chapter 5. We, we need to be these kind of men because it is crucial for your marriage and for your children and for your job that people who stand in this pulpit preach the word of God to you and live it. Have we not grown weary of people who preach things they do not live out? And how does that help your marriage? And have we not grown weary of people who occupy pulpits, who say a lot of things, but very little of it has anything to do with the Bible? How does that help your marriage? It's amazing that you can have sermon series about your marriage that have very little Bible in it. And yet we seem to think that helps our marriage. And I would say it does not. So there is a great amount of weight placed by God on elders. And for me, here's what God puts on it. He thinks it's such a big deal that he says, I will have to give an account for every single soul that I shepherd. That's weighty. It's weighty. So I want to make sure that I stand up here and proclaim to you the word of God and let the Holy Spirit sort that out as far as application means to your life. Amen? So here we go. Now that I got that out of the way, let's move over to chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 17, start in verse 17 through the end of that chapter. That's Paul speaking to Timothy, led by the Holy Spirit, has already made some comments to reference elders. He's going to pick it back up in chapter 5, verse 17. And here's what he says. Let the elders, the pastors who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sin of others, Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, returns to his comments about elders because Paul knows what you need to know and what I understand, and that is healthy churches are the result of healthy leadership. 
which is biblically godly leaders. And you see this in verse 17 where it says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. You don't rule well, you need to get fired. Right? Yes. Let me tell you, churches are a lot more excited about firing people than that, I guarantee you, because I've been fired. And they were really excited. Some of y'all are like, he's been fired? I heard a pastor lead a graduation of a seminary, and he said, if you don't get a fired at least once, then you are not proclaiming the gospel. My best friend who was graduating at that time, he thought, he said the immediate thought in his head was, Jason is godly because he's been fired twice. There you go. But you should get rid of people who do not do it well. You should do that. You have a calling as a congregation to hold your pastors accountable to do this job well. And for those who are doing it well, Scripture says they should be worthy of double honor. Especially those who labor and preach and teach and then Paul references Deuteronomy chapter 25 and says, You should not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. It's very simple. If an ox is out treading or plowing the fields and he decides to eat some of the grain, the scripture says, Let him eat some of the grain. He's doing the work of treading out the grain, therefore he should receive some of the grain. And in this text, and I love to get to preach on this because you only get to do this if you're unpaid or you're bivocational. No full-time pastor ever preaches on this text <laughs> for fear that they will be fired. Uh, but I get to do that because you can terminate me, and that's fine. Um, it would be bad, <laughs> but uh, nevertheless. I don't, I don't want to go for three times. Um, but nevertheless, in this text, the Word of God, the Word of God says that those who do this well are worthy of double honor. Now, if you grew up in a Baptist church, you've ever been a part of a search team or a deacon body who oversaw pastors, that was wrong, by the way. But nevertheless, if you ever if you grew up in that, um, they would always immediately say this has nothing to do with money. Because they're Baptists, and we believe in keeping them poor. <laughs> Except for, it says that the laborer deserves his wages. I tell you, having been in ministry a good portion of my life, uh, I have experienced this at the hand of churches. Uh, we call it No Pay Sunday. Uh, one church that I pastored, uh, they were not always able to pay my wife and I, and so I would get a check and come home, and my wife would say, did you get paid today? And I would say, I did, but there's a sticky note on the check that says, do not cash yet. <laughs> and uh, we learned uh, early in life how to um, return groceries uh, so that you can get credit to buy other groceries. Did you know you can do that? Uh, you, can't, you can return hominy. <laughs> you cannot return Halloween candy. We, we've learned those kind of things. If you did not know that, well, there you go. I've given you some information. Um, I remember at one point my wife and I had a car that was given to me by my great aunt who had not driven it. She was too old and she could not drive it anymore. And uh, after getting it, it really wasn't worth driving uh, anyway. But uh, it had an air conditioning in it, which we felt good. We were pastoring in Houston at the time. And if you've ever lived in Houston, you want air conditioning. Uh, and when you turn the air conditioner on high, it did this. 
And if you got really close to it, you could get a little bit of air blowing on you. The window would, when you rolled the window down, it would completely fall into the doorway. And so uh, it was just one of those vehicles. And when you got on the big Beltway 8 bridge and you went straight up over the ship channel, uh, it would go about 42 miles an hour. And you would have all of Houston behind you because that was a very small road over the ship channel. Uh, and then when you came down the other side, you couldn't control how fast it was going, and the steering wheel would shake like that, and people would drive by me uh, with certain hand gestures to let me know how they felt about my car as well in Houston, uh, and none of the youth ever wanted to ride in my car, and the few times we had to pick up students in my car, this is no joke, they would lie down in the back, they were afraid to be seen. I remember that. Not having any money, not being able to pay for anything, not having a car that had air conditioning. Uh, my parents, uh, who I have, who have told me that I received all of the money I'll ever get at their death early because they paid light bills and grocery bills and flat tires, and we went there. I remember at a particular time that there was no money for us to be paid with. Church um, had issues with giving. Uh, not because the money was not in the church. I just didn't give regularly. Um, and our car was not running well, and we had not been paid. We had some friends come over to the house that day. They wanted to show us their brand new car. They remember of our church. And my wife and I went out and sat. They wanted me to sit in the new car. thought about wrecking it, taking off the slip, but I didn't because that wouldn't be like Jesus. Um, and as they were telling us that, they told us about the new concert tickets they had just scored. Uh, for a big concert that was going on in Houston and how they were normally a 1000 a pair and they'd gotten them for like 500 a pair. Uh, we had not had groceries in a while uh, and the car wasn't going well and they meant nothing by it. They were uh, joyful and good people and good friends, uh, but they didn't understand this text. Here's the reality. No pastor should have a beat-up, run-down car with no A.C. while serving a congregation that has well-running cars with A.C. Mm-hmm. That's how this is simply put. And then now, I'm not saying that pastors should be wealthy, and if you're worried about that, let me help you out. <laughs> that is not something you need to be worried about. I don't know of very many churches that happens. Forget about the guys you see on TV. We're talking about real pastors who pastor churches. Most of them and their churches are in no danger of them making too much money. It's not there. Here's a simple rule from this text. Pastors who rule well, who do a solid job, who are making a difference, who are feeding the sheep regularly and well from the word of God, these men should receive double honor. What's the text says? Now maybe that's a parking plot, a parking spot up front at your church that I will quickly decline. <laughs> but maybe you should offer it. And maybe the church offers that, and then pastors who know better decline it. But you, according to Romans 12, we should outdo one another in showing honor. Now. If you're a guest with us, you're like, well, this church must have problems. (laughs) I want you to hear this. Uh, I feel none of this with this church. This church has honored me and cared for me and loves me and pays me for a bivocational pastor. I am thrilled and beyond happy. And I have pounded that into you as a congregation. I hope God leaves me here for 30 years, but I one day uh, will leave either because you finally make me leave 
as an old senile man or I die. But whatever the case, I want the next guy to come in to never experience not being paid double honor. I want him to be loved by this church as you have done so well with me. Then we see, as we continue the text, that there seems to be a difference, as we have said before, between those who teach and those who are not teaching, both elders. So there seems to be special attention placed upon those who labor in preaching and teaching. There's double honor should be given to the elders. They should be. It's there. We see it. But it says especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. There are clearly elders whose primary role is teaching and preaching, and there are others who is not to be primary teachers. Um, but nevertheless, they should both be given double honor, uh, but you should, for all intended purposes, I think you see in the text here, uh, that if there is a pay scale, that the ones who labor the majority of the time in preaching and teaching should be paid more than those who are not laboring and preaching and teaching. Elders, however, as we see in this text, should not be driven by greed, um, uh, we know that from actually First Timothy chapter three that should be um, driven to greed. Uh, they should be taken care of, but they should not be solely doing the job for pay. Then it goes into do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so the rest may stand in fear. Don't hold court. Don't. Hold in as truth. Don't hold an accusation against an elder unless there's two or three witnesses. Now, we need a little work here uh, because clearly physical and sexual abuse by an elder should be reported to law enforcement immediately. You don't have to wait for two or three witnesses. Uh, clearly, we have teaching Romans 13 to abide by the laws of the land. And so that is not... Uh, as some people throughout history have abused that and said, well, you have to have two or three witnesses, that would clearly not be the case. However, we do see in the text that it is a very serious thing to accuse an elder. Not because they cannot be accused or should not be accused if they have sinned, but the ramifications of the accusation of an elder is devastating to the church. And so the church should not allow charges to be admitted unless there is evidence by two or three witnesses. This is not talking about criminal cases. It means that if someone comes to me and says, well, Lucas was rude and insensitive to me yesterday, that we don't immediately put Lucas up before the church on trial to be removed. We need, uh, although it may be true, we need an evidence or, or a pattern of Lucas being rude and insensitive. Now, if you've ever been around Lucas, you know that Lucas is many things. Rude and insensitive is not one of them. Uh, that is for sure. This would never come uh, to be, I don't think. But yet, if it were, if someone were to make that accusation, it would shock me. Uh, and then if a day or a week later someone else made that accusation, now we have two witnesses. And then maybe someone else comes forward and that would be clearly a time for the elders to convene and say, hey, brother, these are serious issues. 20% almost is about elders and the way they live their lives in front of the church or the way the church responds to them. And so things like this should be taken 
Seriously. And Paul goes so far that those elders, in context, in speaking to elders, those elders who continue to persist in sin, they don't get dismissed silently. They don't just get swept under the rug and dismissed stage right. No, no, no. They get called before the church, even if they're unwilling to come, and they are rebuked publicly. And it says that that kind of rebuke should cause others to stand in fear. We, you and me, are called to live lives of holiness. And pastors who do not do that, and after many different attempts, as we can see in the text, various texts, are made to confront that elder and have that elder repent. If that elder, if that pastor, if that overseer refuses to repent and continues in his way of life, the church is doing a harm to itself to just silently put that away. No, no, that needs to be brought before the church. The church needs to hear this and see this, and the church needs to rebuke that elder so that others will say, oh, Sin is a serious thing in this church. Grace abounds, yes, but grace exists to overcome sin. Not so you can continue in it. Romans 2.4, do you, not, do you not understand that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? And so an elder who refuses to repent should be dealt with. And then you have Paul say this in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you, Timothy, listen, Timothy, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Because it is the case that elders can become friends. I'm friends with Wayne. I'm friends with Lucas. We spend more time in our elder meetings laughing and hanging out and goofing off. <laughs> the elder meetings would be a lot shorter <laughs> if we could just get to the point. But we have a lot of fun with each other. And that friendship can lead to partiality. It can lead people to overlook sin that should be dealt with. Paul, being aware of this, make sure Timothy understands that. Listen, don't allow partiality to enter into this. This is serious stuff. And sin needs to be dealt with. And then he goes into verse 22 and he says, look, Timothy, do not be hasty in laying on of hands, meaning don't make picking elders easy. Don't be quick to do this because in taking part, you could end up taking part of the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And so elders should be examined. Potential elders, that is. And, of course, those that are already there should be constantly watched as well. But potential elders should be examined. And the church should know them before they are appointed elders. And the church, I think, has a clear role in that and affirming the elder selection of additional elders. It takes some time, I believe, to become an elder. And the elder, by the way, is not a matter of age. This is elder is not a matter of being an elder, meaning elderly. It has to do with maturity in Christ. You could be, I've met people that are 65 who've walked with the Lord for 40 years who are not as mature as those in their 30s that walk with the Lord. So it has to do with maturity in Christ, but elders uh, should, um, should be a lengthy process to become an elder in any church because a pattern of behavior should be known. 
I think there was a public ceremony of some kind in which the elders lay hands on a future elder, but you cannot be in a hurry to do this. As the New English translation, which I think does a better job at verse 22, says this, do not lay hands on anyone hastily and so identify with the sins of others. Meaning, someone who should not be an elder, who has a behavioral pattern outside the church or maybe even within the church, that is sinful. You know, it's the guy that I said that you go... He's an elder? He's a pastor? That guy? You know, the one that you're like, he shouldn't be a pastor. You do not want that guy to be brought before the church and for the elders to lay hands on him saying, this, this right here is an example of godliness and holiness. And this is the guy that we want you to follow as he follows Christ. When the world is saying, that guy's not godly. That guy doesn't represent Christ at all. And what happens is because the church got in a hurry, then everyone outside the church says, well, that's terrible, that guy's pathetic. And so we, as a church, identified, we aligned ourselves with the sinful pattern of that man. So therefore, work should be done to uncover any patterns of sin in a potential elder's life. Otherwise, otherwise we would be mocked in some ways by those outside the church. And then in verse 23, which I love, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach. And your frequent ailments. I love it because it's wine. If you were here last week, we covered that that speaking to wine with alcohol. With alcohol. That's why Paul tells Timothy to make sure you don't have any drunkards. Uh, that's because the wine had alcohol in it. <sighs> anyway, but the number two reason I like it is what happened to the prosperity gospel? <laughs> why is Timothy having stomach problems? Can he just say, I'm Jesus' child, the son of the king, and I therefore no longer have stomach problems? <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> because the apostle Paul said, here's what you do about your stomach problems. He didn't say, speak it, speak it, and make it be gone by the name of Jesus. Didn't say any of that, although I have no issue with healing. I think Jesus is still in the business of healing people, uh, no doubt. But it's just interesting here uh, that Paul does not tell Timothy uh, to just you know, proclaim his health and that all that would go away. And then in verse 24, it says, The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Here's what that means. This is why you don't get in a hurry to make elders, because sin comes to light. Sin comes to light, as does good works. Patterns are there, and we should... Look for them. Now let me give you some practical applications for our church. If you're a visitor here, uh, we're glad you're here. Uh, I just want to speak to the covenant members of our church. As we continue to grow, it is our desire as elders uh, to have more elders. So I'm going to remind you of a few things that may challenge the way you were raised. As we can see for the last five weeks, all elders are pastors. You've been, if you've been visited by an elder, then you've been visited by the pastor. But there is no necessarily the pastor. If Lucas shows up for your surgery and prays for you, you should not say, well, I'm glad Lucas was here, but I really wanted my pastor to come here. No, 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 no. Trust me, you want Lucas praying for you. Okay? You don't want me praying for you. <laughs> Lucas is a pastor. 
I am a pastor. Wayne is a pastor. And any other future elder is a pastor. We have got to get out of this Western cultural idea that somehow I am elevated above all congregation members and all other staff people as the pastor. It's not a biblical idea at all. We don't see that at all in any of the text on elders. Now, I think it has been argued, and I think argued well, that there does seem to be a principle that many have come to call the first among equals principle. And that is that it seems, it seems, that Peter leads the disciples. Seems to be. But he doesn't lead them because he's better than all of them. Have we not covered Peter on Easter morning? Did we not talk about him? It just seems that based on his gifting that the Lord gave him, that it was Peter who stood up in the first sermon in the New Testament church and preached. It seems to be that Peter is uh, the spokesperson for the disciples, it seems. And so there's an argument that among equals, there seems to be one who may be first. And in our church, the elders have decided, and the church has decided, that would be me. And it's not because I'm better than one, not because I'm better than Lucas, but my particular gifting seems to move me into a spot to cast vision for our church and to proclaim the majority of the preaching and teaching time. And I need to get this drilled deep into our DNA as a church. The other elders do not exist to back me up. These are not yes men. I have one vote on the elder board. And I've been overruled. (laughs) They were wrong. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) They're not yes men to my goals and my vision. And here's why. I know it's a shock. Here's why they're not yes men. Are you ready? Because I am not always right. I know it's a shock. The elder team is not about Jason Williams. It is about souls entrusted to the elders and overseers at Sovereign Life Fellowship and how the Word of God commands us to shepherd them. That is the highest priority of the elders. Not to make sure I'm backed up. Elders must have a pattern of holiness in their lives to become an elder and to stay an elder. And they are not called to be more holy than other believers are. They're not. I'm not called to live a more holy life than you are as a believer. The standard of holiness is God said, I am holy and you be holy. He didn't say, you be holy and you pastors need to be holier. I need to be holier than God. And the standard is that you be holy and I be holy. But the fact that I could fail or be wrong or walk away from the, from the Lord is the very reason why we do not have a single elder model in this church. Even elders who are godly, who are the only elder in a church, can leave deep problems in a church when they leave. Because who fills that leadership spot? And who makes that decision? So it is our hope as a church in time... As a young church, I've wanted to beat this into us because I think God wants to beat it into us. And that's why it's in the text so much. That this is important for the health of the church. And in time, I would like to see uh, more lay elders, which are non-paid elders, than we have staff elders. And we don't actually have that in the text. There seems to be some mystery there. and That's why churches can make different decisions about how that 
how that system looks, but we clearly have elders. We clearly have elders who should be paid, who are especially responsible for preaching and teaching. Uh, and then we have elders who are not responsible for preaching and teaching, which doesn't mean they shouldn't get paid. But here's where our, our elders are as a church. We believe that we should have more non-paid elders than paid elders because it's healthier. I mean, don't you hate it when Congress votes themselves a raise? Isn't that exciting? <laughs> it's also as equally as hard, even for an elder staff who loves the Lord and for a church who loves the Lord. It's just difficult for us to come before you and ask for something like that. So, well, the elders voted, and you're like, I bet they did. <laughs> so we think it would be helpful to have non-paid elders on our team. What does this have to do with you? It has to do with the care of your soul. It has to do with the care of your soul. This should be important to you. Because we do not need more legacies of pastors abusing the church members. We, need, we don't need more legacies of pastors who, who say one thing in a pulpit and live it completely different out of the pulpit. And I don't want to be a pastor who has a legacy of a church that doesn't care for him. It's important to get this right. Because if we can get this right, if we can do this right, then imagine what God can do through the church for your marriage and for your ability to raise kids and for your ability to live a godly life at work. Do you see? This is crucial that the men who stand here proclaim the gospel and proclaim the truth of the scriptures. And if 20% almost of two books is about elders and somehow elders have a lot to do with the gospel, and they have a lot to do with it because we help proclaim it to you. And I don't care how long you've been a believer. You need the gospel preached to you all the time. Amen. To be reminded of what we have been rescued from and of what we have been promised to. We need to be reminded of that all the time. And only the gospel changes people. And only the gospel enables men to be the kind of men in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. And as we've said, we want that to be all of our men. And the only way you get to become an elder is not because you're not qualified, it's just because you don't want to be an elder. You say, I don't want to be an elder, and that's the only reason I'm not an elder, but I match these characteristics. And ladies, even though eldership is for men and the text is reference to men, do we not want women to be people who are not greedy, to be people who are hospitable, the people who are not lover of money and can care for me? Yeah, we want women to behave as godly people as well. And that only happens with the gospel. So here's the gospel. The good news. Good news is only good news if you know the bad news. Here's the bad news. When you were born, you were separated from God because of Adam's sin. That's why you sin so well. No one has to teach you. You didn't learn that in kindergarten. You had it down pat long before then. <laughs> and that sin separated you from a holy, holy holy God. But even while you were sinning, even while you were actively in rebellion against this God, this God loved you. And he looked at you, and he placed his love upon you, and he's calling you to his side. 
And for those of you who hear that call, and those of you who hear the gospel proclaimed, and your eyes are opened up to it, and you finally see it as many of you in here could testify, walking this way, and God entered in and changed your life, and you've never been the same since, those who accept Christ and repent and believe are forever changed by the gospel. Because Jesus, because of God's love for you, was sent to live a life that you can never live, holy and perfect, as a spotless lamb, to take your punishment on a cross that you deserved. And Jesus said, I'll take it. And he died and resurrected, defeating sin and death. And for those of you who have grown weary of trying to do it your own way, for those of you who have grown weary of the religious way, of trying to do it your own way by checking off all the boxes. Aren't you just tired? The gospel says this. Jesus did it for you. Amen. And if you repent and believe in that, you'll be changed. And people say, how do I know I've been changed? Oh, you'll know. You'll never be the same anymore. Amen. And that's the gospel. As Keith comes to lead us in worship, I'm going to ask all of you Pray with me, and I want to remind you that our elders are always here to converse with you. We do not have a traditional uh, altar call in many churches, or like many churches do, uh, because you don't need to come take my hand to repent and believe. You can do that right there. I don't need to play 17 verses of just as I am to convince you to come to Christ. You know. If you do, just repent and believe. If you need to talk or have conversations in reference to that, or if you need prayer for other things. Our elders always stay behind. Uh, We're the last to leave generally and we're always here to talk with you as we are during the week. Pray with me now. Lord God, I do ask that you help us as a church to be reminded of the importance of who leads your church, God. Pray for every person who's sitting in these chairs who is a covenant member of this local church God that they would forever hold those who stand in the pulpit and those who hold the title of elder and overseer to the high standard of scripture and God I pray that they would be willing to be held accountable by those elders to the high standards of scripture Lord, I pray for Sovereign Life Fellowship. I pray for this church. God, that as we try the very best that we know how to do this church according to the scriptures, I pray, God, you would bring your blessing upon it. You would draw people to this church. You would help us to be a lighthouse to a very dark world. And Lord, that that we would be a church where marriages are forever changed, for your glory, the burdens are lifted, Kids who are problems come to know you and are changed forever. People walk differently in their jobs than they did before Christ. Lord, the people who are facing all kinds of difficulties would find great joy in that difficulty in you, Lord. I pray that we would be that kind of church. Grow us, Lord, by your power. And may we be faithful as elders as congregational members to the people that you bring us to love people well 
Help us walk lives worthy of your great gospel. In your name we pray.